Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up the text in Genesis 4-6 today. And uh, just by way of introduction, a little backtrack here uh, regarding everything that that took place in the preceding verses because we were talking about the two offerings in our previous episode and obviously the lord had regard for abel's and not for cain's and and we talked about that in in some detail there but i wanted to bring some other texts in to bear on this and uh, namely in the book of hebrews in chapter 11 we have what's called the hall of faith uh, you know, play on words, the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and we have all of these people uh, throughout the Bible who display great faith and they demonstrate that they have saving faith. Well, the very first person who's mentioned in the Hall of Faith is Abel. And we read this in Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So we see here his demonstration of faith, and there are some technical details uh, that go into that, some of which we covered in the previous episode. But uh, one of the things that that comes out is evidently uh, the reality and the necessity of a blood offering, a blood sacrifice. And that is why, and of course, all of this was communicated, which we talked about, even though it is, it is not made explicit, it is, it is intimated through the text and through context, there was a blood uh, offering, a blood sacrifice that was required. So those are good things to look at. Now, as we continue moving on here to verse six, we want to get to the solution to the acceptable offering. Uh, that we looked at before. And in order to do that, we're going to have to look first of all at the Lord's response to Cain. Clearly he's already accepted Abel's offering, but now he's going to respond to Cain. So verse six, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So now we come to the part of the text here where we're getting ready to see what we all know is coming next, uh, which is the murder of Abel. But before we get to that, we have this discourse from the Lord, and he asks two rhetorical questions. Number one, why are you angry? And two, why has your countenance fallen or why has your face fallen? Now it's interesting here because neither of these actually require an answer, but they serve for introspection on Cain's part. And as one commentator said, they were designed to show Cain that he had no cause to be angry at God. 
So we see here that as he is very angry, as we already noted before, he became very angry in verse 5, and his countenance fell. We questioned, who is he angry at? And it seems, first of all, that he's angry at God. And this is an interesting philosophical uh, point that we can pause on for just a moment. I'm not saying this concretely necessarily, because we're talking about the sin nature and all of its manifestations and so forth. But there does seem to be an aspect that in depravity, the outworking of our sin or the manifestation of our depravity and sin nature is really an expression of our hatred and anger towards God. Now, here's the interesting part about that. We can't take anything out on God. He's untouchable, right? (laughs) We can't kill him. We can't harm him. Now, you know, we can grieve the Holy Spirit whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. We know those types of things, but we can't actually do anything. And I think that this murderous heart here, this anger which leads to murder, which, by the way, Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount, if he could have, he would have killed God. But because he can't kill God, he turns then his wrath to his brother. But the fact of the matter is, is these questions demonstrate that even though he is mad at God and eventually is going to shift that anger to his brother, there's no reason to be angry at God. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. When you look at these questions, why are you angry and your countenance is falling? You, you think that you have a, a cause to be angry. And you think that you are justified in your response here, but you're not. You're not actually justified in those things. Uh, But on the other hand, does God have cause to be angered uh, or to be angry with Cain because of his offering? Well, absolutely, because it's clear from context that, that the right and acceptable offerings had been communicated. And so we have to, we have to understand that. Now, there's not just these two rhetorical questions. There's another one uh, in verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance uh, be lifted up? And that is also a rhetorical question which suggests an affirmative answer. If, if you do well, will your countenance be lifted up? And the answer that is suggested is yes, it will be lifted up. And, and so we have to understand that as well. So here then we we pause again. Communication of what was and wasn't acceptable clearly had taken place here, most likely sometime before this. There's even some discussion as to whether or not there were other siblings present. Uh, And, you know, I don't want to get too thick in the weeds here. I don't think that we have record of all of Adam and Eve's children. When we get to Genesis chapter five, they have more and more and more. And we're going to talk about this later, you know, when Cain takes a wife and and all of that other stuff, obviously, clearly, you know, there have to be other siblings as well. We don't know exactly when in, uh, in the timeline of early human history, this takes place, but clearly communication had taken place. So God says, if you do not do well, now here we note that there is a choice. He says, sin is crouching at the door. Uh, This is interesting. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the the door and its desires for you, but you must master it. 
There's a great lesson here on dealing with sin, and I want to point something out in just a moment as well. Number one, just from a practical standpoint, just to exhort the believer uh, through this passage, we are all faced with desires, and at times we all face failure before the Lord and others. That's true of every single person. Now, instead of wallowing in our sin and feeling self-pity and acting on our anger and eventual hatred, we must choose to do what is right. We must choose to repent. We must choose to confess and ask forgiveness. We must take the steps to make it right. It is a choice. And this lesson is huge for us even today. And we see this. Cain is presented here with the choice. And and the choice is listen to, to what God is saying. God is directly communicating to him. And by the way, God directly communicates with us through his word, by means of his spirit, not that we're trying to access the spirit through some special mode of prayer or anything like that. Uh, we're not talking about that. Uh, but, but the point is, is we have all of this here and God says, listen, you, you messed up. Okay. That much is clear. We all messed up, but how do you respond when you mess up? If you do well, number one, your countenance will be lifted up. So focus on the first part of that, that rhetorical question, will not your counsel or countenance be lifted up? The answer is yes. If you just go ahead and rectify this and make it right, go out and take your vegetables, barter them for uh, you know, a sheep or whatever. And at this point, is there even bartering going on? They're all the family. Negotiate, figure out what you can do here and bring an acceptable sacrifice. You do that and I will accept you. That's what the Lord is saying. That's the positive note. But if you don't do that, the path that lies before us when we choose not to address our sin and continue wallowing in it is pretty dark. It's pretty grim. And I think we know that, but here it is very, very evident. And so he says this, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, from a technical standpoint, there's one really fascinating thing that jumps out here. This is the first time in the Bible, Genesis 4, verse 7, that the word sin is actually used. And the Hebrew word for sin and its Greek counterpoint uh, basically translate to the same thing. So this Hebrew word here, uh, chata'at, Uh, the basic meaning of it is probably something that you've always heard before. Sin is missing the mark. And just like in the Greek, the Greek word for sin means to miss the mark. And so we find this theological term introduced into the text in Genesis chapter four, verse seven. But attached to that, not only is there sin, but he says sin is assuming a certain posture. It's crouching at the door. And the sense here is that it's ready to spring forth. And uh, we, we think of the imagery of a lion that's getting ready to pounce on prey. They're not just strolling along, and this isn't a high-speed chase. If they're able to sneak stealthily up on their prey, if you've ever seen like a nature documentary or something like that, it'll nestle down in the ground and get, you know, get all ready on its haunches and everything like that, and you see it, and then it's just getting ready to spring on its prey. 
Well, that's the imagery here when he says that sin is crouching at the door. You don't take care of your sin right away. It is going to pounce on you. And I mean, you've already fallen prey to sin. You've already done something wrong. If you don't address it, it's ready to take you hook, line, and sinker. Now, we have another picture of this where the same word is used at the end of this book in Genesis 49 verse 9 when we're talking about the blessing of Jacob or Israel on his children. And and it says that he crouched as a lion. I think he's talking to Judah there. Uh, but, But the point is, it's the same verb with the same idea. And, and so that's very interesting, and it's very instructive to us to tell us how we should be dealing with this. If anything, before we even get to the actual sin, he's already committed sin against God, and now if he doesn't get it right, we see the natural end of that is to fester in his hatred for God and then in turn to turn that hatred towards others, and, and it just is a spiraling downward of degradation, sin, and, and of course it's going to culminate in murder. And then, interestingly here, the Lord also says, after he identifies this theological term for the very first time and what it's doing, he says that its desire, that sin's desire, is for you, but you must master it. Now, uh, Jonathan Sarfati, in his commentary, points out that this is an echo of God's judgment on Eve in Genesis 3, verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband. In other words, she's going to want to rule over him, but he shall rule over you. Sin's desire for the person who has let it begin to take a hold in them is to rule over them completely. And here is the solution. You must master it. You have to make this decision to master this sin. Now, what's really interesting here as well is that he uses this phrase here, crouching at the door, and we already discussed what that means, like a lion, but that also brings up an interesting point. There is some conjecture here that animal predation had already started by this time. In other words, that uh, that as Adam and Eve are having children and their children are going into the world, that the animal world around them is becoming less and less tame. No doubt it was tame in the garden, but remember, all nature is affected, and now they would be able to understand this imagery. Well, how could they understand it except that they had seen animals of prey begin to do this? And it's it's really interesting. So, The whole point in all of this, before we actually get to the actual expression of the murder, is that Cain is supposed to demonstrate self-control. And the lesson for the believer today, the lesson for you and me, is not that we're going to be perfect, because we can't. We're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to mess up. It's what do you do and when do you do it? Because the longer you wait and let it fester and brood, uh, the worse it's going to be. And remember that sin works this way, not just with Cain, but with everybody. And, And it never wears out and it doesn't get tired of doing these things. It is always this enemy that is ready to pounce. 
And the longer we give it, uh, you know, time to do this and the longer we go without addressing it before the Lord, uh, the more inevitable it, it will be except by God's intervention, which sometimes he's mercifully uh, willing to step in and prevent us from self-harm. But other times uh, he gives us over to our lusts and passions of the flesh. And even as believers, then we end up paying dearly for those, those choices that we make. So we have to understand that it takes self-control. And importantly, it's not just self-control. We do need to develop that so that we can try earnestly not to sin. I mean, that's, that's the goal. But when we do sin, that also requires self-control right afterwards so that we can be back up and in the right place with God right away. And that's what God is telling Cain here in this little discourse in verses 6 and 7. Such a powerful lesson for the believer today. Unfortunately, I think you and I both know how that ends up going with Cain, and that will also serve as a lesson for us as we continue to move through this text. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.